0: Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series, Beyond the Boat. This message comes from Matthew 15, verses 10 through 20. And if you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, we're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 15, verses 10 through 20. And uh, so if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to that passage. I'd encourage you to keep your Bible open throughout our time so you could see uh, you know, where the, not only the text, but where all the points from the message come from. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. We'd invite you to use that. It's on page 812. Let me begin by reading the passage we're gonna look at this morning. Matthew 15, starting in verse 10. Speaking of Jesus. And then he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered them, every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up, let them alone. They are blind guides and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding May God bless the reading of His word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege that we have to be here this morning, again, to be able to dive into your word. Thank you for the truths that are here. Father, I pray for your blessing on this time. Father, on, on your passage, on this word, I thank you for what you're teaching me. And I pray now that you get me out of the way, Father, that your spirit speak through me. And Father, that your word be, would co- go forth and that each one of us would have hearts to hear and understand and to apply whatever you would have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who have been at our church for any length of time, you hear me say something periodically, that this idea that, that when you understand the biblical Christianity, the gospel, you understand that that's not at all a religion. In fact, the whole message of the gospel is actually very much at odds with religion. Now, throughout the gospel, we see Jesus constantly disagreeing with and arguing with the religious leaders of his day. And, and, and the problem wasn't just them and their Jewish religious system, his problem was with this whole religious religious approach to God. Religion is basically a works approach that focuses on keeping rules. It's, It's not doing bad things that will get us out of line with God and doing enough good things that we somehow feel, if we do enough good things, we'll work our way into relationship with God. Now, there are different religions and they might have different views of God and they may have different ideas of the rules that we're supposed to keep, but all of them are kind of united by this idea that it's defined by the rules, by by all these things that we have to do, what what a person does, external acts. While the Bible teaches that the gospel is God wanting to have a relationship with us that's based on not external, but internal transformation. Let me give you an example of this that is relevant for this weekend. Um, This weekend, tomorrow, is actually September 11th. It's the 22nd anniversary of September 11th, 2001, and many of us remember that, or if if you're too young, you've you've heard about that. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 Islamic terrorists hijacked four commercial airlines and turned them into flying bombs, flying them into buildings, including the Twin Towers in New York City, in an attempt to kill as many people as they could. They killed nearly 3,000 people. Now, one thing that's important to remember, though, is that all these men were motivated by a religious motivation. They were all committed Islamists, and they had been taught by their religious leaders that the way for them to earn God's reward, to earn, in a sense, heaven, was them to hijack these planes and to do as much destruction, as much damage as possible. Now, there are a lot of things that we could look at and say, well, you know, that's a dysfunctional religion, and, you know, what kind of religion teaches that that's a good thing? But the key is that I want you to see is that they were all motivated by this religious spirit. They believed that if they did something great, then they would make themselves right with God. They were taught that this act of terror, you know, if they did it, that they would ultimately then, because of that, be ushered into God's reward. In fact, let me read directly from a quote of one of the religious leaders who helped recruit these terrorists. He said this, he said, I described to them how God would compensate the martyr." sacrificing his life for his land. If you became a martyr, God would give you 70 virgins, 70 wives, and everlasting happiness. Now, my main purpose in mentioning this is not to talk about just the anniversary of 9-11 or to talk about how evil Islam is. That's not my purpose. It's more to illustrate that even this illustrates this religious approach to God, that somehow we earn God's favor through our performance. Now, most religions aren't you know, this extreme where you're saying it's by going out and killing as many people as you can that that's what God wants you to do. But the fact is, it's not that dissimilar from other religions in the sense that somehow we think there's, what does, what does he want me to do? How do I perform? And if I do enough things, if I keep enough rules, then, then God's gonna be happy. It's, it's all about this religion that's based on man-made rules. Now we're gonna see this really taught here in this passage. That's the key theme that Jesus is getting into. But before we dig into verses 10 through 20, where we're going to focus most of our time today, I want to go take a step back because, in a sense, we're walking into the middle of a conversation. It started all the way back in the beginning of the chapter, and and, and it's a continuing of that thought. We see in Matthew 15, uh, 2, that the religious leaders had come to Jesus, and they asked him this question. They said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And We talked about a little of this with us last, last week. You know, they, the disciples weren't breaking any teaching of the Bible. they were breaking man-made rules, the tradition of the elders they're talked about here. Over the years, you had Jewish religious leaders kind of make up and add things to the Bible. They man-made rules that were from God. And, and not only that, but then over the years, they began to say that, that these were the ways that you would really be right with God, and they would judge other people by how well people were keeping their rules. Now, specifically here, the religious leaders were complaining that Jesus' disciples weren't keeping the rules about ceremonially washing their hands before they eat. And and some of you have got to say, well, where does it come from? That's not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it command that. And here's what happened. In the book of Exodus, there was a command that God gave to the priests that before they went into the tabernacle to worship, they were supposed to wash their hands and their feet ceremonially. And it was a way of them acknowledging their, their you know their need before God and their need to be washed by God. It's it's an image that is similar to baptism that we celebrate now. But over time, this again, this is just for the priests as they go into the tabernacle. But over time the religious leaders started to say, well, if the priests do it, then we should all be safe when we should all do it. You know, it couldn't hurt if we all had to wash like that. And 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 then they added to that and they said, Well, if, if we're supposed to wash before we go to God's presence in the temple. Well, don't we go to his presence when we pray? So therefore we should wash before we pray every time. And, and then they added, but they said, and then since we're supposed to pray before we eat, well therefore we should wash our hands ceremoniously before we ever eat. And that became a rule that they're judging other people by. This is what they're confronting Jesus about. Now they're man-made rules. But according to these religious leaders, keeping these man-made rules are what made somebody right with God. Now Jesus responds to them, and he not only confronts you know, that these man-made rules are wrong, but he really confronts them to saying, "Your whole religious system is wrong." The whole idea of, of what you're thinking. And that's what we see here in verses 10 and 11. We're told that He called the people to him, and he said, "Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Now, that's going to be the main theme of everything that he says, and he's going to be expanding on this. And he's saying it's not just about even here, about washing hands. That's what started this. But it's about all the rule keeping. It's not what goes into the person. It's not what you do on the outside that defiles a person. It's what's on the inside. It's about, it's about the problem of who we are. Now, here's what I want you to see, is that Jesus is saying this in a way that is defined by his love, but it's also something that is causing offense. The religious leaders said Jesus is disagree- uh, uh, you know, understood that Jesus wasn't just disagreeing with them about this one rule, but he, they understood that he was disagreeing with their whole system. And not only that, but he publicly did it. What do we read in verse 10? He called everybody to him and he said basically, you know, these guys are wrong. And, and you see the response in verse 12. Jesus' disciples came to him and said, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by what they heard um, when they they heard the saying? And and they were offended. Now, when I think about that, I think about our cultural values of our day. And according to the cultural values of today, one of the worst things that somebody could do is to offend someone, to say something that you disagree, that you don't like. And the challenge for us is for those of us who believe the Bible, um, the Christian gospel is all based on the idea that there is a God. And that he has revealed himself, he has revealed his truth in his word. And therefore, what the Bible says is God's truth. We live in a world where this is your truth, this is my truth. Well, no, this is God's truth. And therefore, God says it's true whether you believe it or not. It's, it's always true for all times, for all people. Now, this is a really offensive concept in our modern culture. Because it's saying that there is truth. And if you disagree with that truth, you're wrong. That's not my opinion. God is saying you're wrong. There is moral truth, there is right and wrong, and there is sin, and if we cross God's line, that's sinful. Now that's a radical and offensive idea to many people in today. And according to the cultural values of our time, you know, to say something like that, to say something that is offensive is, is not only you know, one of the worst sins that people could commit, it's, 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 an, it's an evil. It's, it's actually in many, many places, especially college campuses, it's a form of violence. And so that you hear people talk about that in a form of speech, it's violence, it's hate speech. In fact, offending someone with your words is often seen as a worse violence than physically beating them up. So that's why you have groups like Antifa that will go out there and beat up people whom they disagree with and their their physical violence is justified because it's stopping speech violence. In fact, there was a study that was released just this week about free speech on college campuses. And it revealed that nationally amongst 200 universities, an average of 27% of students said that they think at times violence is justified to stop a speaker from saying things they don't like. It's it's over a quarter of college students in America today. Some college campuses, it was over 40%. Now, this idea, because it's so, you know, such a, a value that is so deeply held by many has kind of impacted even the way some churches think because it's so highly held by you know, people in our culture that there's pressure put on churches. Well, well, therefore, if confronting somebody, if offending somebody, if it's evil, well, we shouldn't do that. You know, we shouldn't say anything that might offend someone. And many churches have adopted this as a, as a value in their ministry. I've heard people say, well, we're trying to be careful. We don't want to say anything that offends people. And so that we go around certain truths because we don't want to offend people because... They'll, they'll say, no, we want to have the accepting and loving attitude of Jesus. Now, What I find really interesting when I hear people say that is then I go to the Bible and I look at the Bible and it's pretty clear that Jesus doesn't adopt those values of, of our day. I, I, you know, We might say it's a great evil to publicly disagree with someone to, that might cause offense, but that's what Jesus intentionally does here look at it. You know, he not only disagreed with the religious leaders about their man-made rules, but then he calls them out publicly about their whole system of religion. And, and we're going to see that he's pointing out that the problem is that, you know, they don't see themselves as, as really sinners. That they, and he's saying, no, your whole understanding of sin is wrong, that you've got a sinful heart. And that's offensive to people. They didn't like that. They didn't want to hear that. And that's a big part of what's causing this offense here. That's, um, you know, so if we continue and, and look at what he's saying here, um, we see in verse 12, the disciples come, and the leaders are not just a little offended, they're majorly offended. And the disciples come to him, say, Jesus, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Now, again, according to the values of our day and what people even say, well, we want to be like Jesus, offending someone is the worst thing that we can do. You know, we need to be more like Jesus and not do that. But here, Jesus clearly offends the religious leaders. And I think the disciples are going up to Jesus and asking him, in part because I think part of them is saying, Jesus, I don't know if you know that you did this. You know, are you, are you aware, maybe you did it by accident, are you aware how offended they were? And again, according to the values of our day, we might expect Jesus to respond, oh, I didn't know I offended them. Oh my! You know that's that's terrible. You know how how can I fix it? Call him back and let me explain it. Let him clear up any misunderstanding. I don't I don't want to cause offense. That's not what he does. He doesn't try to fix it. If anything, he doubles down in his response. Look at verse thirteen. He answered, "Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up." And basically saying, you know, if they reject me, that's okay. They have their choice. But we need to realize that, that, you know, that, that there are going to be plants there that are not planted by my Father. They don't have a true relationship with God. And in Jesus' mind, what he's saying is, and I'm speaking truth here, he's saying, and they may not like that, but it was truth that was seeking to expose their heart. Why? Because they claim that their man-made religions were truth. They claim that, that what they did made them right with God. And Jesus is saying, no, I need to confront that lie and expose the truth because I want you to realize you know, that you're currently living in a rejection of God. You don't have a relationship with God. He continues in verse 14 saying, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. And he's explaining something of his motives, loving motives here. He's not confronting people to condemn and saying you're evil and you're bad. He's, he's speaking truth to confront a lie with the idea that, yes, he knows that might offend people. But he also knows that he's trying to help people who have been blinded by that lie. Now, to understand this, let's, let's go to, run to the illustration Jesus is using. He's talking about blind guides, blind leading the blind, they both fall into the pit. So think about those who are blind. Think about this picture. If you see someone who's blind, you know they're blind. They're walking down a path, and that path is leading them to a cliff and you see, okay, they're walking down here, they're walking right here, they're just, they're walking towards that cliff, you know that they're not able to see what's going going on, and you see that, what do you do? You see the danger of the cliff, they can't see the danger, and you know if they continue to walk down that path, they're gonna walk off that cliff to their death. So what do you do? And I think most of us would say, well, the obvious answer is we shout out a warning. You know, we, we, we warn them, you know, watch out, there's a cliff in front of you. You know, stop and, or turn or, you know, don't go. There's, if, if you don't stop, you're going to fall and you're going to kill yourself. That's loving. That's the right thing, isn't it? And what if you did that and the person turns to you and responds, are you telling me I'm stupid, that I don't know where I'm going? You know, I'm offended by what you're saying. How dare you say that? What would you do? If you think it's possible someone might respond that way, what is the right thing to do? You see, I look at it and I think, the right thing to do is to shout out the warning. I know they might be offended, but the fact is that if I don't shout out the warning, they're going to walk off the cliff. They're going to destroy their lives. my Friends, that's what's happening in our culture. People are blind spiritually, but yet in that blindness, they're still at times offended when we speak the truth because we're pointing out their blindness. They're about to walk off the cliff, and we're called to speak that truth. And, and we can make them turn. We can't force them. But what we can do is speak the truth, even at the risk that it may offend, because we know that the truth may save some. Well, not only call to speak the truth to those who are blind, but if we look at verse 14, he also says that we're to speak truth about blind guides. Well, look at what it says again. Verse 14. Jesus told his disciples, let them alone, speaking of the religious leaders. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. So he's now publicly speaking against, not only against the rule, but against their whole system and saying, no, they're teaching wrong things. They're blind guides leading blind people into a pit. Now again, let's go back to the picture. Think in your mind the imagery that Jesus is using here. If you saw a group of people that you knew to be blind and they're walking down this path and they're being led by another blind man, and this blind man is telling them, oh, this path is going to, oh, it's going to lead to a great feast. It's going, to relate, you know, it's going to lead to something wonderful. But you see again that it's leading off the cliff. What do you do? Well, first of all, we maybe call out to the leader. And if the leader rejects us, then we call out to the people, don't follow him. You know, he's leading you to your destruction. He's leading you to a, pl- you know, a terrible place. Now, that's what we should do. Now, we look at that. That's what's happening in our culture. You know, what we've got to realize is when we look at the culture, you have all kinds of people and cultural and social influence that are out there proclaiming certain truths, telling people all kinds of things about, about their you know, identity, about sexuality, about a host of other things, about what is true and what isn't. And they, these people and in influence, they're spiritually blind. What they're saying is a lie. They can't see the truth. But even worse, they're leading a bunch of other blind people down a path that's filled with pits. And, and we can see that they're about to walk off a cliff. In fact, it's not only that, it's far worse. You see, we can look and it's not hard to see that there are thousands upon thousands of people that have already walked into the pit, that have already walked off the cliff and we can see the damage that it's doing. So for example, there's an amazing amount of research just over the last couple of years that showed that in these, you know, these last years, you know, our culture is increasingly unhealthy and broken. Numerous studies show that depression rates are going through the roof. Suicide rates are going through the roof. You know, drug abuse going through, death of despair. People are just dying because they're broken. Their lives are lost. People are lonely, people are confused. People have no sense of meaning and purpose in life. And we see that all around us, it's obvious. And so what we see is that not only walking down the path, we see the, you know, the destruction that's being done by these blind guides. So not only the cliff is obvious, the damage that is being done is obvious. And so what are we called to do? See, yes, our culture says one of the worst things we can do is to speak the truth because it might offend. And, but the fact is that I want to be like Jesus. And we're followers of Jesus. And, and, and we realize that Jesus spoke truth and he caused offense, not to cause offense, but he did so. And he calls us as his representatives to speak truth because it's what people need. And apart from that, they're, they're going to walk off a cliff. But we're called to speak truth in a spirit of grace and love. As followers of Christ, yes, we need to proclaim the truth, but not in a condemning way. It's not, you're bad, or, you know, no, it's, no, watch out, you know, because I, I was once blind, and, but now I see and I understand that, and we're speaking truth out of the love and compassion of Jesus that he has for those that he knows that are, that are headed down a path of destruction. I love the description, again, in the beginning of of our study of Matthew Matthew, at the end of Matthew 9, where it talks about Jesus' love and compassion for the lost. And he says this, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You see that heart of compassion. That's what should drive us. But we need to realize that, like Jesus, when we point out that the worldly wisdom is wrong, that it leads to brokenness, it's going to offend some people. And we don't do it to be offensive, but we do it as Christ to speak with a spirit of love and grace and compassion, showing people their blindness, hoping that that will help them to see the answer, the hope that we find in Jesus Christ. It's truth and grace. As it says in John 1:14, and the word, the truth, the word, he was the, you know, the word that we need became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we speak full of grace and patience, but also full of truth. It's not only that, but we also then need to let God's truth speak to us. Even if that truth steps on our toes, even if it offends us, even if it, if, it, if it speaks against something that we believe or something that we're doing. Now, Going back to Matthew 15, we see that the main issue that Jesus, again, is confronting here is this whole mindset of, of, of religion. You know, the Jewish religious leaders, and, and it's all about this idea of, of you know, what do we do? And, and it's a mindset that, again, wasn't just then. It's not just about Islam. It's, it's something that is pervasive and defines people's views about God to this day. In, in verse 11, Jesus had called the crowd to himself, and he said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles the person. Then in verse 15, we're told that Peter comes to him and says, "You know, well, you know, help us understand this parable. We don't understand it. And in verse 16, he says, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as an expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart this defiles a person. For what comes out of, the, um, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a person. Now, first of all, what he's doing here is he's confronting the inside-out nature. I'm sorry, the outside-in nature of religion. And it's not just, again, the Jewish religion and legalism of the day. It's all religion. All of it is outside-in. That's how we view things. We have this natural instinct where we, where we want to make it about what we do. Our righteousness before God is defined by our efforts, our goodness. And Jesus here confronts that with actually a really vivid language. In 17, when he says, you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes in the stomach is expelled? He says, when we eat food, you know, it goes into our mouth, it goes into our stomach, and, and then literally says, literally his w- little wording goes into the latrine. And part of what he's saying is it never touches the heart. It doesn't touch who we really are. And when he says it's not what we put in us that makes us unclean, basically he's—it's not just talking about the issue of of eating with unwashed hands. It's not about germs. It's—it's about spiritual purity. But it's about any of the keeping the rules. And and I think it's when we look at this, it's confronting the whole religious approach. And what is religion? Religion is an approach that focuses on what we do, on the externals. It's—it's about what rules are we keeping? You know, it's everything from the outside. So we're trying to do the right, not do the right wrong things that might pollute us in some way, and doing the right things that make us right before God. It sees our, our main problem is our bad actions. The main problem is what we do. It's outside of us. It isn't our sinfulness, it's the bad things that we do. It's the main problem isn't eternal, it's external. Now, this view of religion is based on a wrong view of ourselves. Why? Because it, it assumes that we are morally neutral or maybe even morally good. And, and if we can keep ourselves from being stained by wrong behavior, the problem isn't inside, it's outside. And if I can keep that outside from, from staining me, then, um, you know, then we're good. Or if we make a mistake, if we can somehow do enough of the right things, then we can clean it up. And the idea is that we're innately good, and, and it's rule-breaking that makes us bad. Now, we're going to have a couple physical illustrations here. So let me take the first one. All right. So here's the picture. It's like, okay, according to this view, it's like, okay, our life is that we start off as kind of a blank slate. You know, we're, we're morally neutral or good. And the problem is our sin, the bad things that we do. We, it's a problem is that we don't keep the rules. And so when we look at it, you say, well, here are the sins. And so if you wash your hands, well, that's a little sin. Well, if you commit adultery, that's a, you know, that's a bad sin. Or if you got this, and, and, and what we've got to look at is we've got to say, what are all the rules? And so we've because I, I want to be pure, pure I want to be right, religion is all about saying, what are the rules that we would do? What are the things that we're not supposed to do because I don't want to accidentally get you know this, this, this mark on me, this paint on me. And so if I really work hard to keep the rules, then, then I'm good, but the problem is that I'm not perfect. Well, so then that's the other part of religion because it's not just about keeping the rules to keep you from being stainted or tainted. Well, then we're going to have some other rules that if you do enough good things and so they're kind of like white out. So it's like, well, okay, if you go to church all the time and if you give some money, you know, that's going to clean you up here. And if you, you know, if you, if you spend some time volunteering and so it has this idea that, okay, what we're trying to do is, is make sure that we stay away from this keeping these rules. And, and then we have other rules that kind of white out. And, and it's man-made rules in the sense so that you start with what God says, but then because we know that we're not perfect, well, then what we're doing is we're saying, well, we're going to really stress these washing rules and we're going to stress this. And, and therefore I can really say, everybody look at these things that I'm doing right. Meanwhile, we hope to hide the things that we're not doing so well. That's the whole idea. It's the idea of religion that what we're trying to do is we're trying to you know, not do the bad things, clean it up with the good things. And we hope at the end of the day, we've kept enough marks off and we've done enough white out that even if we're not perfect, we hope that God grays on a curve a little bit. You know, that we're pretty clean. But what Jesus is teaching here is that this whole system is based on a wrong understanding of, of ourselves, on the nature of sin, a, a wrong understanding of God. You see, the Bible teaches that the key to a right relationship with God uh, you know, is, is, isn't external. It isn't that we're morally good and that we're trying to externally do these things. It says, no, it's all about a relationship with God that's about the internals. It's not outside in. The gospel is all about inside out. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Go back to again, verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach as an expelled, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. What defiles the person? What they did? No, the heart. The heart is what defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. A heart, the heart defiles the person, and what happens is it expresses itself. Religion focuses on what we do, on the externals. We're we're morally good, and and if we keep the externals, no. the gospel says it's all about the heart. It's not about what we do, it's about who we are, who we are internally. Religion says the main problem is what I do, the sinful things. And look, the Bible teaches, oh, it's not an external problem, it's an internal problem. Our main problem is who we are. It's that I have a sinful heart. The Bible teaches that, that we're not a blank slate. See, let me use another illustration here. Okay, so I'm gonna use another picture. So it's going this is a complicated message here, all right? So the one picture says, okay, here's our problem. We've got this, um, you know, we've got this blank slate. We're trying to keep ourselves from being polluted. It's about keen religion. The gospel says, no, this is our problem, that we're filled with sin. That it's not that we're mostly good. No, it's every part of our heart is sinful. And, And the fact is, is that whether we're, you know, pour a little bit more in, how do you take this out? We have a sinful heart. It's not that I'm a good person and, you know, that I bad things that somehow happen. I have a foundational problem of being sinful. The Bible teaches that we are innately sinful and our actions reveal our heart. So it's not that I'm trying to do this and the problem is, you know why I sin? Because something happens and it knocks what's in me. So what is in me comes out and it expresses itself in sinful actions. My biggest problem isn't my sinful actions, it's my sinful heart. That are, and my sinful actions just reveal who I really am. In fact, we see this idea all the time. We see how people reject this idea. How often have you seen a public figure that is caught in some kind of transgression, some kind of embarrassing situation, and, and they're called out on it, and they, give an, and they give an apology. And the apology is almost always the same. You know what they say? You know, I did this and it was wrong. I just want you to know it wasn't the real me. That's not who I am. That's not what I really believe you know, I just made a mistake and I'm work harder to try to not do it. That's religion. That's saying, no, that's not the real me. This, this external thing happened, this external temptation and somehow it marked me. But now I'm, from now on, I'm going to try to white out. So that's not who I, because that's not who I am. And the fact is the gospel says, no, that is who we are. When I sin, that's always an expression of who I am. Temptation doesn't, put sin in me, it just reveals and and exposes the sinfulness in me. See, here's the idea, that I've got this sinfulness, and and every part of me is sinful, but the challenge of this, number one, it's kind of offensive, because I would like to think that I'm really good, that I'm really not that bad, that I've just made a mistake, and to, to say that I'm actually sinful, man, that's kind of offensive. That's why people don't like it. That's why people are offended by the gospel. But then also, how do we change the status See, if we look at it, how do we change this? And we're going to see the first thing is we confess. And confession doesn't just mean that I admit to God, well, I did something wrong and I I apologize. Well, no, that's not what biblical confession is. It actually means to agree with God. And to agree with God, it's not only that I did something wrong, but God, I agree with you that it came from a sinful heart that I did this. This is who I am. I need you to not only forgive me, I need you to change me. And that's part of what repentance is. It's not that I'm going to try harder, that I'm going to clean it up and put white out. God, I need you to change who I am from the inside out, and I give you the right to do that. That's what the gospel message is all about. It's about how God changes us from the inside out. We can't do this by ourselves. How do I take this out? I can do white out, but if I pour white out in here, it just makes more of a mess. What do I need? I need Jesus Christ. And what we read is that the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ was God eternal who came and lived a perfect life. He, he lived out you know, perfectly, and then, and then he died on the cross for our sins. We died, he takes our sins upon himself, and he offers forgiveness through our faith in what he has done. But in that, we say, how does it happen? And, and a lot of us struggle with that because we almost think, well, how can the, you know, the, the weight of, of uh, the sin of the world, how can... Jesus' death, it, is it equal to that? Is it greater? And, and, and the idea is how does the righteousness pay for one person's sin? And, and we might almost think, you know, it's, well, Jesus' righteousness is poured into us and well, it just, it just kind of dilutes it. It doesn't really make a difference. And, but you've got to understand what the Bible teaches about this. Look what it says in 1 Peter 3. 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit, that he was put, you know, righteous for the unrighteous, that it's not that he dilutes the sins, that he washes them away, he changes us, he gives us his righteousness. Romans 3, verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's a righteousness apart from the law. It's not what we do. And some people who think, well, but isn't the Old Testament about rules and about how, what we're supposed to do to get... said, No, they were all pointing towards this righteousness of Jesus. They were all saying, you can't keep the law. You're, you, 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 if this is your view of things, you'll never be pure. And so you realize this is the problem and we need a solution outside of ourselves because we can never fix this problem. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ who all believe. Verse 22, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You know, our only hope is that we realize that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life, that he was God eternal. And when he died on the cross, he not only comes and says, Through my death, I will take your sins, but he also says, If you trust and believe in me, I will, t- I will give you my righteousness. What does it mean? That it, literally we accept him, we bring him into our life. And what happens is when we bring him into his life, he pours himself into us, and suddenly it does what we could never do. It takes that which was stained, and suddenly it makes it new. It's a miracle of God. That's the power of the gospel. My friends, That's what God calls us to. That's what this whole message is about, this whole thing that Jesus is saying. It's not about the external. It's not about what you eat. It's not about, you know, it's not about this. It's about we have a sin problem at the heart level. And our sinful actions reveal that. It's a heart level we could never fix. But Jesus Christ came and the gospel, that's what he does. And so the question is, first of all, really the question we each have to ask is this have you ever responded to that? Have you ever accepted God's gospel? Have you ever asked God to change you from the inside out? And again, for some, it may be that first time where it starts by admitting, it's not about works. It's not about me trying to be, God, I'm not good enough. No, admit that you're not good enough. It's not about how where your sheet is. It starts by admitting, I've got a sin problem I cannot fix. And there may be some that feel like, I'm so bad and I've done all these things. It doesn't matter how bad you are. The whole thing is that the power of Jesus and the gospel is far greater than, than our sin. And so what we do is we admit, God, here's the need. I cannot fix it. I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. I confess my problem. I ask you to change me and I put my faith in Jesus Christ and his power to change me. If you've never done that, I invite you to do it this morning. Just even, you know, as we wrap up and, and in a, you know, just even a prayer prayer, basically something, God, I agree with you, I'm a sinner, I ask you to forgive me, I accept the gift of Jesus Christ, I want you to pour your righteousness into me and to change me from the inside out. Now, There might be some who have done that before and you're, and you're struggling and you're, man, but I mess up here and I mess up here. Now, here's the problem, is that we can have people come to Christ and understand this and say, okay, now that Christ has cleaned me up, well, now I've got a clean sheet, now it's all up to me. No, the whole thing is the gospel is all about, it's admitting that I am broken, that I cannot do it. So even as a believer, my struggle with sin is still the same thing. God, I, I, I still struggle and God, I can't, I can't do this. I'm struggling with addiction. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with, with, you know, with this. I'm struggling with theorism, whatever it would be. And we still come to Christ and we accept the gospel, ask him to change us from the inside out. God, you've forgiven me, but I, I realize that I've got this thing that I can't have victory over. I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. I admit my need, not just of what I've done, but who I am. And that's hard to do. But God, I ask you to change me from the inside out through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. I give you the right to change me. And that's hard to do because we hold on to our sins and we think we need them. It's hard to really surrender. My friends, we realize that all of us are going to be at times naturally drawn, drawn towards this religious mindset. That's just the way we're wired and Jesus consistently confronts that, even possibly offending, not because he wants to offend, but out of grace and out of love, knowing that we all need to hear the truth, because this truth is the only thing that's going to keep us from the path of destruction. And Again, if you're here today, if you've never done this, or if you need to kind of renew that, that statement of faith in Christ, let me encourage you, even as we're going to close up in a minute, close in song and This is a great time to come before Christ and to to not do so in the spirit of religion, but to accept the invitation of relationship that starts by admitting our need and then accepting the grace for what he's done for each one of us through the cross. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, community church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.